welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions of sex and masturbation. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, does having an orgasm automatically make sex good? I'd like you to think about your last sexual encounter, either by yourself or someone else. What do you remember? What was the best part? Was it the orgasm? What if you didn't have an orgasm? Would that have been a disappointment? Can you have good sex without orgasms? Can you have bad sex with orgasms? We often equate orgasms with sexual satisfaction, but isn't there more to sex than orgasms? On this episode, I'll go into ridiculous detail about what orgasms are, talk about bad orgasms, and also explore what actually makes for great sex. That's coming up on Do We Know Things? But first... On the last episode of Do We Know Things, called Should You Stop Masturbating, I explored the world of NoFap, which is an online community of mostly men who commit to not masturbating or using pornography. One listener emailed to tell me about his experience quitting masturbation and how much it changed his life. He wanted to stay anonymous, so I won't say more. Like the people on the NoFap subreddit, this listener was very passionate about the ways his life had improved after quitting. And I agree that many, many people feel like they've been helped by quitting masturbation and watching porn. I absolutely think it's true that quitting masturbation when it feels out of control can help you feel better and more in control of your life. But I also want to reiterate that masturbation or compulsive porn watching is likely a symptom of broader problems. What else in your life is making you unhappy? Are there circumstances out of your control? like racism, unemployment, or a bad boss? Do you feel lonely? Are you in a relationship but not connecting with your partner? Do you suffer from anxiety and depression? There are so many things that can contribute to problematic porn use and compulsive masturbation. It's also important to note that in addition to the many men on the NoFap forums who think masturbation and porn have harmed them, there are also many more people who masturbate and use porn in ways that feel great for them. Porn is not the problem and masturbation is not the problem. And now let's talk about orgasms. There are many reasons why we link orgasms with sexual satisfaction or good sex. First of all, that's what most of our media tells us is important about sex. Second, orgasms usually feel pretty damn good. And third, for people with clitorises, especially those who are having sex with cisgender heterosexual men, there's a major orgasm gap. Have you heard of the orgasm gap? Orgasm gap. The orgasm gap. The orgasm gap. The orgasm gap is a phenomenon that is studied most and occurs most during sex between cisgender heterosexual men and women. In study after study of heterosexual sex, men are much more likely to experience orgasm during partnered sex than women. Men report orgasming during partnered sex around 90% of the time, with variation depending on the study. 
women's reports are pretty variable, with rates during casual sex being lowest, but even in a nationally representative sample of newly married couples, only 50% of women reported consistent orgasms with their partners. The highest amount reported in a survey of women having sex with men was 65% of women reported that they usually or always orgasm. So there's a very clear difference here. A big part of the issue is that the heterosexual sexual script prioritizes penetrative sex and male pleasure. Most women do not have orgasms from penetrative sex because for many, it doesn't stimulate their clitoris, which is what's needed for orgasm. Of course, you can add clitoral stimulation during penetration with hands or a vibrator, but just straight penis and vagina sex only stimulates the clitoris for some women. So of course, if we prioritize penetration during heterosexual sex, then it makes sense that women have fewer orgasms. Cisgender women report being able to orgasm regularly during masturbation when they do masturbate and when they have sex with people other than cisgender men. Most likely because these non-heterosexual encounters involve more activities that are pleasurable for people with clitorises. I think that because the sex many women are having with men is mediocre and involves either pretending to have orgasms or not having them at all, we've conflated good sex with orgasms. An orgasm is this clear marker that something good has happened. It's often called the peak of the sexual experience. In the fight for equality of orgasms, I think we've forgotten a little bit that there's more to good sex than just orgasms. The topic of orgasms comes up a lot on this podcast, but I haven't really dug into the details. Before I started graduate school, I hadn't thought a whole lot about orgasms. I mean, I guess I'd thought about them as much as anyone else. But then I started graduate school in 2005, working with Dr. Cindy Meston, who had just chaired an international committee on female orgasm, basically making her the world expert on orgasms. I started thinking a lot more about them. How much have you really thought about orgasms? If you've had orgasms, you'll know that not much thinking goes on during the orgasm. And I definitely don't want you overthinking them. <laughs> That's a clear path to sexual problems. As a sex researcher, it's basically my job to make sex boring by overthinking it. So I hope you'll indulge me for a few minutes here, but please don't start overthinking your own orgasms. When teaching my human sexuality class, my favorite way to define orgasms to my students is that it's basically just a bunch of muscle contractions in your pelvic region. It amuses me to make orgasms sound so boring. In terms of defining orgasm more formally, I think the most in-depth research I've seen done was by doctors Kenneth Ma and Irv Binnick, who were researchers at McGill. They did a series of studies exploring what orgasms were and how people experienced them. One of the first things they did was look at the research to see how orgasm has been defined. And when doing this, they found 25 different definitions. The definitions can be grouped into those that focus mostly on the biological aspects of orgasms, those that focus mostly on the psychological aspects, and those that combine both. My favorites are the biological ones, like this one from Campbell and Peterson in 1953 describing female orgasm. The definition is a neurohormonal reaction of smooth muscle organs and contraction of homologs of ejaculatory muscles. Or Masters and Johnson's 1966 definition, release of vasoconcentration and myotonia from sexual stimulation. Sounds delightful. The more psychological definitions aren't much better. Davidson and Davidson in 1980 just defined it as an altered state of consciousness. 
which I guess is accurate, but there's more to it than that. In 1984, Alzate and Ladano defined orgasm as the subjective perception of the most intense point in a series of increasingly pleasurable sensations elicited by sexual stimulation. Sounds fun, I guess. The biopsychosocial definitions are probably the most thorough, but also still very scientific. The definition of female orgasm by Mestin and her committee of international experts is a variable transient peak sensation of intense pleasure creating an altered state of consciousness, usually with the initiation accompanied by involuntary rhythmic contractions of the pelvic striated circumvaginal musculature, often with concomitant uterine and anal contractions and myotonia that resolves the sexually induced vasocongestion, sometimes only partially, and an induction of well-being and contentment. So just think about that the next time you're having an orgasm. So although that last definition was specifically written to describe orgasms of people with vaginas, people without vaginas would also have very similar descriptions. And research has actually shown that when people write down descriptions of their orgasms, those who read them can't tell what the sex of the writer is. So after going through the existing definitions of orgasms, Ma and Binnick wanted to create a list of words that might describe orgasm. They originally came up with 60 words that they then asked people to rate to see if they described their orgasms. So participants in the study could rate each word from zero, not at all, to five, definitely describes my orgasm. One category of words described physical sensations like radiating, spurting, throbbing, and swelling. Other words described the perception of those sensations like relaxing, intense, pleasurable, and fulfilling. A third category of words described the feelings that occurred from orgasm, so feelings like blissful, ecstatic, vulnerable, and loving. I'll put a graphic with all of the words on the Do We Know Things Instagram and on the episode page on doweknowthings.com. So there's a lot going on when you have an orgasm, and usually it feels good. But really, it is just a bunch of contractions. Our psychological perception of those sensation is what makes them feel good, which also means that they can also feel not good or just neutral, too. So let's talk about bad orgasms. Some people have genital pain, so that orgasms are actually uncomfortable and painful. Painful orgasms are not common, but they can happen. Orgasms can also be perceived as bad when someone with a penis ejaculates earlier than anticipated. So although the person might experience some pleasure from the experience, they may feel embarrassed or ashamed, or so it can make the overall experience feel bad, so clearly not leading them to feel sexually satisfied. The thing that led me to actually want to talk about this topic, though, was a study conducted by Dr. Sarah Chadwick and her colleagues, where the researchers specifically asked people about bad orgasms. Chadwick points to evidence that women and men have reported orgasms during sexual assault, clearly a time when they're not experiencing pleasure. But her study specifically asked people about consensual sexual activities. In the study, the researchers looked specifically at experiences of people who reported having bad orgasms when they were coerced into sex, when they were having compliant sex, so basically agreeing to have sex when they didn't really want to, and having an orgasm when their partner was pressuring them to do so. 
In all of these experiences, participants reported that there was an orgasm, but often it wasn't wanted. When the experience as a whole felt bad, the orgasm did not fix it or make it good. In the written responses, participants said things about feeling ashamed, angry, and other negative emotions. They also reported that the orgasms themselves were not as pleasurable as orgasms occurring in positive situations. And for some people, these bad orgasms negatively affected their relationships and just their general mental and sexual health. And some people felt just neutral and some felt positively about orgasms in these scenarios. It really varied depending on the person. The participants in the study were people of differing genders and sexual orientations. So the bad orgasm experience does not seem to be limited by the gender of you or your partner. These were clear examples where orgasm was not good and did not leave people feeling satisfied. The examples of negative orgasm experiences demonstrates that orgasms do not equal sexual satisfaction. If orgasms don't equal sexual satisfaction, then what does? Sexual satisfaction is different for everyone. And there's actually a ton of research on what predicts being sexually satisfied, but I'm just going to touch on a few things. There are individual variables, so things about you, that contribute to your own sexual satisfaction. But here I'll just talk about factors that are happening in the sexual situation that predict satisfaction with another person. So research tells us that mutual sex, where everyone is perceived as experiencing equal amounts of pleasure or at least attention to their pleasure, tends to predict satisfaction. And high levels of relationship satisfaction are also related to sexual satisfaction. But of course, we don't know which causes which. It's probably a bit of both. And feeling like you're giving your partner pleasure can also increase your own sexual satisfaction. So those are just a few variables in the more formal research on sexual satisfaction. Now I want to dive into some more qualitative research. So what does great, satisfying sex look like? Every year in my human sexuality class, I assign my students an article by Dr. Peggy Kleinplatz and colleagues called The Components of Optimal Sexuality, A Portrait of Great Sex. I love this article because it flies in the face of what mainstream heteronormative media tells us great sex is. Before they read it, I ask my students to think about what they have been taught about how to have great sex. I'll ask you to take a moment now to think about what you think makes great sex. From my students, I get answers like orgasms, chemistry, attractiveness of partner, and penis size. All of the things we're taught by media to think makes for great sex. But when we look at the data from people who claim to have had great sex, my students are surprised to see how wrong they are. For this study, the researchers advertised for people who felt that they had had great sex. They specifically targeted groups of people who would have been more likely to have experience talking about and having great sex. The results are based on interviews with people in the following groups. Older adults who are in long-term relationships and people identifying as being in a sexual minority group. So this included LGBTQ folks, polyamorous people, and kinky people. The researchers also interviewed sex therapists. They asked their participants, how would you distinguish very good versus great sex? From the responses of the participants, the researchers came up with eight major components and two minor components of great sex. The two minor components are things that many people might think are the most important, orgasms and chemistry slash attraction. These two things were only mentioned by a minority of people, so they weren't seen as major contributors to great sex. 
Focusing on these surface-level things in search of great sex probably won't get you very far. The major components that came up again and again in the interviews with people who had great sex were much more psychological, interpersonal, and spiritual. Here's the whole list. Number one, being present, focused, and embodied. Number two, connection, alignment, merger, or being in sync with another person. Number three, deep sexual and erotic intimacy. Number four, extraordinary communication and heightened empathy. Number five, authenticity, being genuine, uninhibited, and transparent. Number six, transcendence, bliss, peace, transformation, healing. Number seven, exploration, interpersonal risk-taking, and fun. And finally, number eight, vulnerability and surrender. So that's the list. Not exactly the same list when it comes to aspects of great sex you might find in men's health or Cosmo. And these things definitely are more intense than your average sexual interaction. But it's really worth thinking about. Things like being fully present, feeling in sync with a partner, being vulnerable and authentic, experiencing deep feelings of intimacy and have, having feelings of bliss and transcendence. These are all the things that matter when it comes to great sex. It's much more than who got to climax first, if at all. Since this article, the researchers have done interviews with even more people. And Dr. Dana Menard and Dr. Kleinplatz have written a book called Magnificent Sex, Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers. It was just recently published this year. In the book, they confirm that these eight components still keep coming up in their interviews. I want to be clear here that they're specifically looking at the difference between very good and great sex. So just because you don't have transcendence or bliss doesn't mean you're having bad sex, but these are things to keep in mind if you want to really take your sexual encounters to the next level. And again, I want to reiterate those physical components like attractiveness and chemistry and orgasms didn't rank in the top eight major components. They were discussed by some participants, but didn't come up as regularly as the top eight. Orgasms are great, amazing even, but there's so much more to great sex. So does having an orgasm automatically make sex good? I think it's pretty clear that the answer is no. Orgasms can be a great part of sex, but sometimes orgasms are bad. And you can have very mediocre sex that does involve an orgasm. Sex therapists often talk about the problems that can come from focusing too much on orgasm as the goal of sex. Having goal-focused sex can actually take the fun out of sex and cause all sorts of problems. And as we've heard today, there are so many more components to great sex. However, we still have the problem of the orgasm gap. So although orgasms don't automatically make sex great, no orgasms at all sucks, especially if your partner's having them all the time. That would be very frustrating and not fair. Like many sex things, it's complicated. We don't want to obsess over orgasms as the be-all and end-all of sex, but we also don't want to completely neglect the orgasms of heterosexual women. On the other hand, we don't want to feel pressured to always have an orgasm, regardless of our sex or gender. Do what makes sense for you and don't rely on the outside world to tell you what makes sex good. Don't even listen to me. That's all for this episode. 
If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. Check him out at paleblue.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things. <laughs>